Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, we're going to talk about phobias today. Phobias is something that uh, over 10 million adults, that's just in the United States, suffer from. And, you know, um, what are phobias? They're, they're exaggerated fears, whether they're spiders, needles, snakes, heights, social situations, even uh, public spaces. So uh, it, they can become all-consuming and they interfere with daily life on a continuous basis. And, and I can't tell you how many people I see that, that suffer from phobias. It is so crippling for people, but it is so treatable. And that is the amazing thing about it. But people sometimes choose to live their life with the phobia and never do anything about it. Uh, that confuses the heck out of me. But it, it once again, it is treatable. And we're going to go into that in a little bit. You know, the good news is that over the uh, past several decades... Uh, psychologists, researchers have developed some very effective behavioral and pharmaceutical treatments for phobias, as well as uh, even technological interventions. Um, all phobias, by the way, are anxiety disorders, and uh, they're, they're lumped in the same class basically as a post-traumatic stress disorder, panic disorder, among others. And anxiety disorders are fundamentally based on fear. And we're going to go into a deep dive on fear in this show. You know, a, a phobia is, is overwhelming. And an unreasonable fear of an object or a situation that poses little real danger, but it provokes anxiety and avoidance. And unlike the brief anxiety most people feel when they give a speech or take a test, a phobia is long-lasting. And it causes intense physical and psychological reactions. And it can affect your ability to function norm, uh, normally at work. It can, and it can affect uh, social settings. It can affect anywhere. And it's amazing that because not all phobias need treatment. But if a phobia affects your daily life, there are so many ways to get it fixed. And that's what I'm hoping will come out of this show. Um, they're, they're, they're finding... That And this is the researchers that study the brain. They're finding that the amygdala, uh, which is a, basically a small um, almond-shaped structure in the middle of your uh, brain's uh, temporal lobes, is the key player. And that it malfunctions, uh, the malfunctions of the amygdala and associated brain structures may give rise to these phobias. So there may be some uh, genetic uh, factors involved in why some people get phobias, but there's also social factors involved. Uh, So, you know, from the neurobiology of the brain, some areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the, the medial prefrontal cortex... Uh, the vetromedial prefrontal cortex and the amygdala store and recall dangerous, potentially deadly events. And this comes from the caveman days. And, and so that we have a natural uh, pre-trained reaction to run or to fly or to, to, to be even fight uh, that's tied to basically our brainstem. And what that does is it, it, it preserves us. It makes us safe. 
And so these things hold memory. These parts of the brain hold memory and directly tie to our fight or flight mechanisms. And, and that those memories can be retrieved very quickly. Our body reacts um, with, with adrenaline, obviously. And some people, the event may feel it as if, if it's repeating itself several times. Uh, some, you know, it, it, neuroscience has found that they are linked in that amygdala which basically, if you look at the brain or understand the brain, it's behind the uh, pituitary gland. And the amygdala can trigger the release of that fight-or-flight hormone. And all of a sudden, we go into a phobia. All of a sudden, we get tied to, okay, I see this, then my brain goes, this is how I react. And so, by moving that information out of those areas, especially the amygdala, you can actually uh, relieve a symptom, and you can do that cognitively in therapy. So, what are some phobic symptoms? The symptom is, is something that a person feels and, and describes, such as a headache, uh, while uh, uh, some people may have symptoms like uh, rash, swelling, bruising. Uh, some symptoms, um, basically with phobias, are very simple. Uh, normally, it's sweating abnormal breathing, like panting, uh, you know, trying to catch your breath, uh, accelerated heartbeat, uh, trembling, hot flashes, chills, chest pains, chest tightness, butterflies in the stomach, pins and needles, a dry mouth, confusion and disorientation, nausea, dizziness, headaches. These are symptoms of phobias. And, and you know, it's a feeling of anxiety when the, the source of fear is not there but simply thought about. That means that if I just think about standing in a high place, I may get anxiety. You know, ch- children, if when they get these symptoms, they may cry or become clingy, attempt to hide behind a parent's legs or an object or have tantrums. There's, you know, complex phobias also that are much more likely to severely affect uh, a person's well-being and, and those who suffer from, for example, uh, arachnophobia, which is a fear of, of spiders, um, may have a number of other associated phobias as well. Um, so many times people don't just have one, they have several. Uh, they may have agoraphobia and they may have uh, claustrophobia. Um, there's all kinds of phobias out there. Um, uh, uh, by the way, agoraphobia is when you want to stay in your house. Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. Okay, so, um, you know, some of the studies have shown that, uh, you know, causes of agoraphobia and social phobia, which are the most common phobias out there, they aren't really sure what they are, but there is likelihood that it's a combination of life experiences, brain chemistry, and genetics. And uh, once again, it's all tied to the survival mechanisms. And according to uh, Harvard Medical School, the relation between a phobia and gender is not always uh, relevant in causing anxiety disorders. There are other factors involved in causing disabling psychological conditions. Um, But according to the study from Harvard Medical School, women have double the chances of suffering from a panic disorder or a social phobia compared to men. Women are three times likely to have agoraphobia, which is the fear of of public uh, places. And also women have higher risks of specific phobias like fear of a particular situation or an object. 
and about 10 to 14% of women have chances of suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. In the case of men, the occurrence is, is confined between 5 to 6%. So around 6.6% of women suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, whereas only 3.6% of men are victims in this condition. And it's important to look at those statistics because that tells you when you're, when you're treating somebody or when you're looking at somebody with a particular disorder, there may be other contributing factors. And so you have to look at the statistics to try to understand, you know, what is the likelihood that this person has a panic attack and it's not just generalized anxiety. So, you know, there's a, a huge responsibility. So let's go through what the most common phobias are. There is a social phobia, which is a fear of being in places with lots of people. There's agoraphobia, which is a fear of being somewhere with no support, away from home, in open spaces. There's claustrophobia, which is a fear of being constricted in confined spaces. There's aerophobia, which is the fear of flying. And boy, I get a lot of people that have that. There's arachnophobia, which is the fear of spiders. And uh, there's driving phobia, which is fear of driving a car. And once again, these are the most popular. Um, there's also emetophobia, which is the fear of vomiting. <laughs> um, there's erythrophobia, which is the fear of blushing. And there's hypochondria, which is a fear of becoming ill. And there's zoophobia, which is the fear of animals. So what are some of the treatments involved in these? You know, you got to look at this. Living with phobia is unbelievable for these people. It's just, it's paralyzing. So, you know, some of the things are beta blockers, which is used for high blood pressure and uh, cardiovascular conditions. There's also antidepressants, which is, uh, you know, serotonin uptake, uh, reuptake inhibitor. And uh, they, that's actually very commonly treating phobia uh, from a, a medical perspective. That is very common to use antidepressants. Some people go as far as to use tranquilizers. But the most common treatment is basically a cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is working on a person's uh, different ways of perceiving a situation or a source of the phobia so they can find it easier to cope with it. There's also uh, behavioral aspects where you, you get exposure to those places that you're scared of or those things that you're scared of to the point where it humanizes them and it calms a person down. And th those are excellent ways to treat someone is to actually put them in the situation, expose them to the fear in a very controlled environment, and then see how they can react differently and take the fear out of it. Because if they can do that, their brain will actually uh, reattach to the object like a spider or whatever, reattach to it in a different way. And so that's one of the ways you treat cognitively. So how are phobias developed? You know, under normal circumstances, fear triggers a natural fight-or-flight response that, that allows animals to react quickly to threats in their environment. I irrational and excessive fear, however, is... Uh, typically a maladaptive response. In humans, an unwarranted persistent fear of a certain situation or object, known basically as a specific phobia, can cause overwhelming distress and interfere with daily life. So, you know, we, we look at all kinds of ways to 
perceive a phobia and how do people get them? You know, for fear to escalate to irrational levels, a combination of, of genetic and environmental factors have to be at play. Um, you know, basically, 25 to 65% uh, of people are exposed to something that can cause a phobic reaction. And, and uh, this is very common in our life. And usually the exposure is between four to eight years old in children when they develop phobias. And, uh, you know, it, it's very uh, limited as to how we do this or how we look at it. But if we grow up with a family member that has a phobia, a specific phobia, what is likely to happen is a child exposed to a parent with a specific phobia is likely to pick that phobia up and actually have other phobias along with it. We, we kind of learn this from our parents. We learn this from our environment and how people react. And we learn this from other kids, especially in school. If, if someone is uh, afraid of something and we are exposed to it, other people tend to get the same problem. You know, it's, 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 you got to look at the brain's early warning system like we talked about. You know, uh, fear, the racing heart, the sweaty palms. The, the other pathway to developing a phobia is to, uh, to basically understand that how the brain is genetically predispositioned and how we have been exposed to environments that have created phobias, objects or animals or whatever it is. So, you know, let's look at fear. What is it? Uh, fear is one of the most basic human emotions. It, it's programmed into the nervous system, and it, it works like an instinct. And from the time we're infants, we're equipped from survival instincts necessary to respond with fear when we sense danger or feel unsafe. So fear helps us. It, it helps protect us. It, it makes us alert to danger, and it prepares us to deal with it. But feeling afraid is very natural and helpful, and in some situations, it can be like a warning or a signal that cautions us to be careful. And like all emotions, fear can be mild, medium, intense, depending on the situation and the person. And, and a feeling of fear can be brief, or it can last very long. So, you know, how fear works, it, it, when we sense danger... The, the brain reacts instantly. It sends signals that activate the nervous system, which causes a physical response, such as a faster heartbeat, rapid breathing, intense blood pressure, blood pumps to muscle groups to prepare the body for physical actions such as running or fighting. Our skin sweats to keep the body cool. And some people might notice sensations of a stomach, head, chest, legs, hands, uh, these physical sensations of, of fear can be mild or strong. And so, uh, this response is known as basically fight or flight. And because that is exactly what the body is, is preparing itself to do, uh, fight off danger or run fast to get away, the body stays in a state of fight or flight until the brain receives an all-clear message and turns off the response. Sometimes, fear is triggered by something that is startling or unexpected, like a loud noise. And, and even if it's not actually dangerous, uh, that's because the fear reaction is acted instantly. There isn't a second thought about it. It's a few seconds faster than the thinking part of our brain can process or evaluate what's happening. So as soon as the brain gets enough information to realize that there's no danger, oh, you know, like a, a balloon that just burst, it turns off the fear reaction. And, and this can happen in seconds. 
But, you know, you have to look at that fear mechanism and understand, is it logical to be afraid? Um, you know, some kids uh, are sensitive to fears. Uh, you know, by the way, like arachnophobia, uh, if you look at arachnophobia, you know, kids very young in the caveman days had to be very careful around snakes or spiders because they would get killed and they were out in the, you know, their huts or in their caves. And so basically that fear was a trained fear and that was a mechanism that people would use to survive. So it was a good thing. However, not all snakes and spiders are dangerous. And in this world, we have to understand that there, we, we're in a much safer place in this world and if we have much more education and knowledge about these type of things. So, you know, fear is the word that we use to describe basically our emotional reaction. And it can be healthy and it can be unhealthy. And so what we're going to do is talk about how we can manage it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back to uh, kids and phobias, social phobia. We're going to break down all these different phobias. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Do you have complete control over your thoughts and your life? It seems like we do, but there are always outside forces that are wreaking havoc with that control. How do we get our thoughts back on track, so to speak? Listen for help. My thoughts are holding me hostage with Dr. Jeffrey Fannin. When you command the power of thought, you can achieve or have whatever you want. Make the laws of the universe work for you. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, you know, I was just, I was, I'm looking back on my childhood and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm going to go into talking about kids and, and phobias. But I remember, and I'm sure all of you remember, when you're first exposed to new things like public speaking, 
uh, flying in an airplane, uh, anything that makes you feel uncertain that you haven't done, uh, you know, maybe swimming in a, in a, in a river rather than a, a swimming pool. You know, these are things that kids can form a fear. If they have a bad experience or a traumatic experience or they see someone else that's scared of those experiences, they tend to uh, basically develop these phobias. And once again, if we carry them into our adult life, they become crippling. And not only crippling to us, but they're also crippling to the people that have to put up with it. And I do mean put up with it because it's a pain in the butt. Um, you know, the truth is people can overcome unnecessary fears by giving themselves a chance to learn about and gradually get used to the thing or the situation that they're afraid of. For example, you know, people who fly, uh, despite a fear of flying, can become used to unfamiliar sensations like takeoff and turbulence. They can learn what to expect and have a chance to watch what others do and relax and, and start enjoying the flight. Um, gradually and safely, the facing the fear helps someone overcome it. And once you've learned to overcome a phobia, you can manufacture that across other phobias. And that is, that is really uh, the goal to do. You know, young, kid often, young kids have fears of the dark, being alone, strangers, monsters, uh, imaginary creatures. Uh, school-age kids might be afraid of when it's uh, stormy or, or a first sleepover. Uh, but as they grow and they learn with the support of adults, most kids are able to slowly conquer these fears and, and outgrow them. Um, you know, some kids are more sensitive to fears and may have a tough time overcoming them. Uh, maybe uh, there's, I know a lot of kids that have very strong dreams and these dreams uh, tend to affect them and actually uh, become like a memory and and so some people develop phobias just by the way they've dreamed and recall that dream. And it may be a repeated dream. Um, I know I had dreams when I was a kid of uh, all kinds of stuff that just scared the living crap out of me and stayed with me for a very, very long time. But, you know, as we expose ourselves, we, we move on and we can move through it. So, you know, kids and phobias, you know, uh, People, you know, kids, basically, you know, a girl with, let's say, with a, a phobia of thunderstorms might be afraid to go to school if the weather forecast is, it predicts a storm. She might feel terrible uh, distress and fear that when the sky turns cloudy, uh, that she just can't go to school. And, and so, how do you deal with that? Well, what you do is you try to teach a child, first of all, expose them to another child who is going to school on a stormy day and to show them how safe that is. And you process it by pairing them up with someone else that is getting through it. And, do the, and if they can do it in a group, if they could do it with other people, then what they do is they gradually process through the phobia. Um, when adults are teaching kids uh, that it's safe, it's an adult teaching a kid. So when you expose children to things that they're afraid of, what you want to do is get other children involved. And that is the way to help them because we as adults, uh, they, kids look at us as, you know, we don't have to be afraid. But kids are very, are very vulnerable in their mind. And so they see when they see other kids, they're much more uh, adaptive to changing that situation and, and, and moving through the phobia. 
Um, also, uh, relaxation methods for kids is, is a great way to assist them, you know, helping them imagine, and because kids have great imaginations. And if you help them imagine something that they're afraid of, and, and they, they put themselves in that fear, and then they change their imagery. Uh, for instance, if, if they're afraid of heights, so, you know, you want to change the imagery of what you get to see when you're high up rather than falling down, you know, because their image is, I'm in danger, I'm going to fall. No, look at what you get to see. Look how beautiful it is. And, and so basically, you can use guided imagery as a way to assist uh, children and to overcome these phobias. Not that you can't do that with adults, but that, that is another way to do this. And so, you know, perceiving a scary situation differently, uh, looking at a photograph, let's say, of, the, of a bee. Uh, some people are afraid of bees. I remember I used to be because I, I was stung like constantly when I was a kid. But, you know, like a photograph of a bee and seeing what bees do and how they act, you know, how they get pollen from flowers and all that kind of stuff and what role they play in life and then, and then how to disturb a bee and how to not disturb a bee. This is ways by educating, this is a way we can process through. You know, um, I remember there was a kid that was afraid of tarantulas and so uh, I worked in a pet store and so he had a big deep fear and so what, what we did was we would hold the tarantula on our hands and pet it and and, and Basically, the tarantula was very docile, and eventually, this kid he would come to the pet store just to see it, and then he eventually would touch it, and then he eventually held it, and all of a sudden, the fear was no longer there. And so, you know, once again, children between four to eight years old—that is when phobias begin for people, for the most part, unless they're unless they are uh, vulnerable in adult life and develop a phobia in adult life by exposure to a traumatic event. Most kids are the ones that form these phobias because of their imagination and what their imagination does with events that cause fear. Now, what is social phobia? Social phobia is crippling. It is crippling because it's a fear of social situations and interactions with other people that automatically Bring on feelings of self-consciousness, judgment, evaluation, criticism. Social anxiety is the fear of being judged and evaluated negatively by other people, leading to feelings of inadequacy, embarrassment, humiliation, and most of all, depression. If a person usually becomes anxious in social situations, but it seems fine when they're alone, then social anxiety may be the problem. And uh, social anxiety disorder, which is called social phobia, is much more common problem uh, than uh, past the estimates have believed. I mean, millions of people all over the world suffer from this devastating, traumatic problem every day of their lives. And it really stems from insecurity. And it, it stems from a sense of insecurity with ourselves and a sense of how we view ourselves. And so when you deal with the social phobia, you don't deal with the fear of the crowd. What you, de you deal with is the fear of who you are and what you're all about and, and, and allowing yourself to revisit how you socialize and how you're seen by other people. You know, the truth is, is the vast majority of people don't understand that we are not as important as we think we are. 
we are not nearly as thought about as much as we think we are, not even by our children or our spouse. You know, that there's the basic understanding of life is, is you're just not on people's mind that much. And if we make ourselves so important, we are going to develop a phobia if we're insecure. We have to understand that most people just don't focus on us that much. And, and that helps in understanding uh, how we can work through a fear and how we can deal with insecurities. You know, here's some symptoms of a social phobia. And you may relate to it or you may not. Uh, being introduced to other people, you develop anxiety. You have anxiety being teased or criticized, being the center of attention, uh, being watched while you're doing something, meeting people of authority or somebody that you feel are important. Uh, most social encounters, particularly strangers and, and uh, making small talk at parties, uh, going around the room in a circle, having to say something. You know, th- these are, th- these are uh, physical or psychological symptoms, but also there's physiological symptoms, uh, which may be like a, intense fear, racing heart, turning red, blushing, deep throat, uh, dry throat, mouth trembling, uh, swallowing with difficulty, muscle twitches, shaky hands, excessive sweating, eye contact problems. Um, constant intense anxiety that does not go away is the most common fear in social phobia. It just doesn't go away. These symptoms just accelerate and accelerate. You know, a lot of people develop a social phobia because they start to blush and they see that other people see them. Now they start to sweat and they develop this, this deep, 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 deep insecurity. And so the deal is uh, you, you have to realize or recognize in a social situation that you can control your symptoms. You have to use imagery and you have to reinvent how you look at yourself in that situation. You know, social anxiety as well can be uh, very successfully uh, treated. Um, There's no rational reason to keep living with this thing. And so, you know, to seek effective treatment, one is therapy. That is a great thing. The other thing is in vivo, which is to, ex- to put yourself in the situation and, and be there with someone else and, and ask them, well, how am I being viewed? How, you know, what, what do you think uh, people are seeing in me? You know, actually self-evaluating while you're there and having someone tell you what they're seeing. Because if you hear it from someone else, like a friend, how you're being seen in a social situation, all of a sudden you're seeing it from someone else's perspective rather than your own vivid imagination. You know, it it is true that we have lived with social anxiety uh, for generations, thousands and thousands of years. As long as we've we've banned up as societies, social anxiety has been around. But this feeling... This feeling that other people are watching us, we have just got to get over it. And once again, it's, it's deep insecurity. And uh, there's this other thing, agoraphobia. And this is another crippling thing. And it's so sad to see people that are exposed to this because this agoraphobia is horrible. It, it is a uh, very cis, uh, serious psychotic disorder and it affects millions of people. And... Um, Basically, it's debilitating. I mean, people eventually uh, won't expose themselves to life. They have a, basically a fear of everything. They start to close their door 
on people. They begin to live in their, in their little space in their home and never leave and find ways to never have to leave. They just don't want to be around other people. And they, they fear everything. They fear all kinds of life. They develop a lot of paranoia of, uh, of people. And it's all very uh, seriously paralyzing. And it's very hard on a family to live with somebody with agoraphobia. And the strange thing about agoraphobia is it slips in uh, very slowly. Uh, what happens is it, it, it normally, a person that's agoraphobic, they just begin to shut more of life off very slowly over time. They spend more and more time not socializing and more and more time staying within a confined area that they feel safe in. And that's the only way that they feel safe. It's kind of like a funnel. They just kind of wrap themselves uh, into one space and eventually that's where they uh, live. Some people will spend their whole life just laying on a couch watching television and basically having everything around them. And, and it's very sad. Um, you know, severe agoraphobia can bring, prevent you from keeping a job, uh, not to mention having any semblance of a normal life. It, it takes a severe toll on relationships, work, fi- finances, self-esteem, not to mention the ability to enjoy life. And without treatment, uh, this painful isolation and constant avoidance often end up defining a person's life and eventually the person shuts them off from the very people that loves them. And and so I can't tell you how many people I've uh, experienced in my career that have agoraphobia. And, and it amazes me. They're perfectly intelligent, wonderful people with beautiful character and beautiful things to say, lots of wisdom, but they just lock themselves up in the, their life. And it is basically a panic disorder. And uh, they will make a thousand excuses why and why people are horrible and why uh, they don't want to expose themselves. But these are just excuses. And, and basically, it, it's its own philosophy. And, and they develop a sense of uh, excusing themselves from life. And so what you've got to do is you've got to face it. You've got to work through it. Uh, losing control while they're in front of people, being in a crowded place, being in a confined space such as an elevator, a car, a plane, a boat, essentially any place from which they can't leave makes them want to do that. They become very dependent on one or, or many people and that is also very sad and very hard on people to have to be codependent on someone that is uh, basically uh, agoraphobic. They eventually develop a a, a fear or an inability uh, to leave their home. They they feel helpless. And the symptoms uh, may uh, make it very difficult, if not impossible, for them to live a normal life. So what causes agoraphobia? As uh, with many psychiatric disorders, science has not revealed the exact cause of agoraphobia. However, there are two factors that may play a role in its development. And these... uh, include a history of panic attacks and the long-term use of certain medications such as tranquilizers or other sedatives. These are the only things that people have uh, correlated to agoraphobia. Who's at risk? Um, Agoraphobia typically develops in the late teens, early 20s, adolescents. Young adults have the greatest risk of of, of developing it. Females are more likely to develop the disorder than males. Uh, the other risk factors includes a history of a panic disorder 
or anxiety, a history of abuse during childhood, and problems with alcohol and drug abuse addiction. Um, and that could be a pharmaceuticals, by the way. So, you know, a- assessing treatment. You know, fortunately, agoraphobia can be treated, although it's one of the biggest obstacles is getting the person out of the house and to the treatment setting. And uh, that is the hard part. The, the dilemma is that it can make some people with agoraphobia feel their situation is hopeless. They believe treatment isn't an option for them because they're crippling anxiety and they can't leave the house. And so, uh, you know, the solution may be as simple as to looking into the phone book for uh, somebody who is very good at treating this and understanding uh, with that there may actually, someone could actually show up at the home and maybe treat the person. Some therapists will do that, some won't. But that may be an option for somebody with agoraphobia. Also, um, psychotherapy, medications uh, such as uh, Xanax, uh, Clonopin, those are very helpful. SSRIs like Paxil, Prozac, those are antidepressants. Cymbalta, Effexor, these are also very, very good medications that can help. Um, you know, due to the risk of dependence, you, you've always got to want to be cautious. Uh, uh, antidepressants can be taken over a long period of time, but uh, uh, some of these, uh, la- some of these uh, things that will knock you down, like Clonopin or Xanax, you can get addicted to. So you want to be very careful with those kind of uh, things, but you want to talk to your doctor about that. We're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, claustrophobia, arachnophobia, and then we're going to talk about some of the most unbearable phobias there are out there. Come right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Life is a journey which never gets easier. As we go through life, we just handle things better as we get to know ourselves. Listen for the Mental Sherpa by Theta Spring. Host Alexandra Janelli believes that each of us are pre-programmed with all the answers and tools we need to move through any situation life throws at us. It's discovering those tools and answers that will set us on the right path to enjoying and navigating life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email... It'll take some thinking. Got a pen? 
The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back. All right. Now we're going to talk about uh, claustrophobia. You know, it is the fear of being trapped or confined in closed spaces, and it can be truly uh, life-limiting. The the fear can focus on not having enough oxygen or not being able to escape. And, And a person dealing with this fear often will experience high levels of anxiety and may find it difficult to breathe. Uh, this may lead to a person experiencing feelings of panic, which may develop into a full panic attack. And so claustrophobia is, is closely related to anxiety and therefore can manifest itself with similar symptoms such as increased blood pressure, tension, hyperventilating, sweating, nausea, uh, fainting, making everyday activities almost impossible to undertake. A simple trip to shops may be full of stress, so much so that the person ends up not leaving their house. Uh, Life with claustrophobia and and living with this is very, very difficult, and most people that suffer from it would say that they are uh, being totally controlled by the condition 24 hours a day. And and I'm telling you, when I've been exposed to people with claustrophobia, uh, even being in my office, uh, just having the door shut for them is is huge problem and sometimes they've got to go sometimes we've got to like step outside go to different places but come back in and just the treatment in the office can be very helpful in some ways Uh, any enclosed area could send a person into a panic attack and often they they find themselves looking for exits wherever they enter and are in, in any enclosed area like a cinema or a restaurant uh, smaller enclosed spaces such as elevators, basements, airplanes, crowded spaces such as bars, shops. They, they are no-go areas for these people. And so avoiding these things, and it, it's, it's catastrophic for their lives. And to live with this and to be around someone with this is unbelievable for a family. It's unbelievable. And, and this disorder, by the way, in adults will affect children's lives. And those children, if they are parents are going to carry on this disorder very likely, very, very likely. Uh, so here's some ways to cope with it, and, and we really got to understand it. The good news is that claustrophobia can be treated very successfully. The first step, though, is you have to acknowledge and it, that it is possible that you can take control of your condition and overcome it. And a person needs to accept the process to recover is a very slow process, and tiny steps need to be taken so they don't feel overwhelmed by the task. So setting attainable goals is essential. And once they are reached, then the individual can progress to the next goal. So learning to live, and that's called systematic desensitization, by the way. Um, Once they live and, and overcome the challenges, they begin to learn how to control the condition. And then they begin to expose themselves to more and more environments and not have that feeling of being overwhelmed. So, you know, it it is unbelievable how catastrophic this can be. You know, breathing, relaxation techniques are vital during the whole process of recovery for a uh, claustrophobia. Often uh, in moments of panic, people can hold their breath 
And basically, that cuts the brain off of oxygen. If you're going to starve the brain of oxygen, you're going to go into a panic attack because your body has to have at least 86%, excuse me, 96% oxygen to feel normal. And so, you know, folks, when you uh, hold your breath, uh, when you're in a panic attack, usually what you're going to do is you're going to clench your teeth and breathe through your nose. And I brought this up uh, to, on other shows, but I'll tell you this, and it's very, very simple. If you want to restore oxygen, what you do is you have to realize that you breathe only through one nostril at a time. That's why we get boogers. We breathe through one nostril at a time. Every four hours, we flip back and forth. And so when we have panic attacks, we clench our teeth, breathe through one nostril, and basically the brain says to the rest of our organs, I need all the blood, I need all the oxygen in the blood because I run the show. And so what happens is we start to sweat, our, our uh, heart will start to murmur, our stomach will have problems because it's not getting the oxygen that it needs and it has, to have, it has a lot of blood in there. Our lungs have a lot of blood. All of these organs, uh, uh, kidneys, liver, all of them need the oxygen in the blood. So how do we get oxygen back? Well, what we do is we drink water. Water has 83% oxygen. And so, and if you drink through an aerated bottle, it activates that oxygen molecule very, very quickly. And that's why we have uh, athletes drink from sports bottles. So the deal is to, to avoid a panic attack or bring a panic attack down, breathing is one great technique, but water is an awesome way to restore balance into our lives and restore and get that panic down. And so a person that has things like claustrophobia, I would advise you to always have water available to you. It may be your greatest assistance. And not only it's a comfort because you have something in your hand. You know, you know being positive, taking ownership of the condition, it makes you readapt into life and not live in fear. You know, not going out can lead to increasing isolation from family, friends, uh, children. And it is, it is overpowering. And it can make you feel that you're, you're uh, suffering all alone, and you're not. People want to be exposed to you. They want to bring you out. Nobody wants you to suffer like this. And, and so if you uh, feel you're not making progress, maybe the best thing is to go into therapy and to let somebody professionally help you. Um, so th- what is this claustrophobia? Well, it breaks, it breaks down into three different areas. There's the fear of small places, which is uh, the most, uh, you know, like closed spaces entail a degree of entrapment. And they cause uh, claustrophobic people to be afraid of tight, small spaces, while others only uh, may suffer from one particular kind of space. The most typical ones uh, are like cars, trains, airplanes, elevators, small rooms, cellars, caves, crowded areas, tunnels. These type of things, these people uh, refuse to go through... uh, uh, like uh, mental imaging tests, uh, MRIs, that forces them to remain in a, a tight space for a long period of time. They have a lot of trouble with that. There's also claustrophobia with the fear of restricted movements. Uh, many claustrophobics are afraid of situations in which their movements are restricted, and this may uh, be true even in a situation where there's lots of space around the person. You know, the, the claustrophobic person might be afraid of a roller coaster 
because they can't move in the seat or or in the same manner. I, I know there are actually children that are afraid of going to Disneyland. And believe it or not, uh, Disneyland has a lot of dark rides. And so some kids feel claustrophobic in those spaces because they're dark. And I find that very interesting. There's also another form of uh, claustrophobia, which is the fear of suffocation. Uh, many people who are afraid of being restricted to small spaces fear suffocation. These patients uh, basically believe they're uh, they're uh, they're not going to have enough oxygen in a room, and they they develop sweats and panic attacks very quickly. So that's another form of claustrophobia that we have to be aware of. Now, once again, we're, we talked earlier about arachnophobia and, and, you know, who's afraid of spiders? Well, you know, a lot of people are afraid of them. Uh, spider phobia is one of the most uh, prolific of the specific phobias and it affects people across a range of uh, cultural boundaries and geological, uh, geographical boundaries. Uh, as many as one in three women are feel, fearful of spiders and the same Figures are probably so true of men, but men won't admit it. <laughs> so, you know, why are so many people afraid of spiders? They hardly pose danger to people. There are around 35,000 different species of spiders currently inhabiting the earth, yet as few as just around a dozen of these pose a lethal threat to human beings. Indeed, uh, 10 times more people die from bee stings than from spider bites. And surely from the animal world, it would be more, more adapted to be frightened of bears, tigers, sharks, even dogs. But relatively few people ever develop clinical phobias over these animals. In fact, we even send our children to bed with cuddly versions of like teddy bears of these creatures. In contrast, many people develop very severe fears to spiders, even to the extent of being unable to, to even look at a photo of a spider. So, why is spider phobia so popular? Well, it's because uh, people who fear spiders are more likely to fear a whole group of other animals that we can call, uh, uh, let's say, uh, fear relevant, like animals consisting of uh, small mammals such as rice, um, rats, mice, animals that tend to have uh, slimy appearances such as amphibians, snakes, lizards, insects, and invertebrates such as snails. Uh, uh, slugs, cockroaches, and other creepy crawly creatures. So, you know, what, what the common factor that makes people frightened of, of these, uh, these, these creatures is disgust. There's a disgust emotion. And all of these animals elicit disgust. And the stronger your own disgust reaction is, the more you're going to dislike these creatures. This disgust emotion is responsible, and it's a response that is evolved to prevent the spread of disease and illness, and primarily, disgust eliciting stimulus are, are things like mucus, feces, uh, vomit, which may carry pathogens that could spread disease. And so we react to these types of stimuli very instinctually as human beings to try to preserve our existence. So many studies have shown that people with, uh, with the fear of things like spiders have a very strong disgust emotion. And they have to re-examine that emotion to be able to not have the phobia. 
and you have to re-understand what you're disgusted by. And you have to mentally, in, in cognitive type of therapy, we have to rethink these creatures that we're afraid of. So, you know, uh, many, many animal phobias uh, dis- uh, are, are uh, focused on this, this sense of disgust. And so what we do is we once again have to re-examine that feeling of disgust. All right. So what are some of the most unbearable phobias? There's uh, ambulophobia, which is the fear of walking or standing. You, you know, imagine the implications of, of that, uh, of standing or walking around fills you with utter terror. How, how would the world, would you live a normal life with that kind of fear? But there are people that actually have that phobia. Uh, there's decidophobia, which is the fear of making decisions. Gee, I know about a gazillion people that have that problem. (laughs) Can you imagine having the fear of making decisions that they're utterly deathly afraid of taking responsibility in their life? (laughs) There's epistemophobia, which is uh, the fear of knowledge. What? So you're you're afraid of knowledge, and so you become afraid of basically uh, learning anything. That's uh, deciding to be stupid, I guess. <laughs> There's cybophobia, uh, which is the fear of food. Can you believe it? Uh, there are people out there that are actually frightened by food. This means uh, people basically have two options. Avoid food altogether, thereby killing themselves through malnutrition and dehydration, <laughs> or to stay alive by eating food and dealing with bone-chilling tremors every time a spoonful of cereal approaches your mouth. <laughs> There's semniphobia, which is the fear of sleep. Can you imagine life without sleep? But there are people out there that are afraid to go to sleep. And boy, I bet they are the most irritable people you'll ever see. There's acoustio, uh, uh, acoustiocophobia, which is the fear of, uh, of sounds, including your own voice. I can understand the fear of hearing my voice because it ain't that great. There's uh, chronophobia, which is a fear of passing time or generally time itself. Uh, there is a... Uh, uh, phobophobia, which is the fear of uh, developing a phobia. (laughs) And there's the pantophobia, which is the fear of everything in life. All right, that's our show. You know, our our next show is is going to be... uh, talking about impulsivity and ADHD, and I'm going to go into a deep dive on both of those. And uh, that includes adults with ADHD symptoms. I want to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get your feedback. DRGBMFT at SBCGlobal.net or Twitter at DRGBMFT. Remember, some people just need a high five in the face with a chair. (laughs) Also, people don't have dirty minds. They have sexy imaginations. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. We'll be right back.